Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is Deborah. We're heading off to Australia and New Zealand, where we will be appearing live and recording an episode in Christchurch on the 11th of May, Auckland on the 14th of May, Wellington on the 15th of May, Adelaide on the 18th of May, Perth on the 20th, Sydney on the 23rd, Melbourne on the 25th, Brisbane on the 27th, and finally Canberra on the 28th of May. So get in and get your tickets now. They are going very fast. Please go to guiltyfeminist.com and just click on live shows for any of these events. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu slash visit. I'm a feminist, but recently I told a young man I know that he has to learn to drive now because he's getting married. And he said, why? Because my fiance can drive. Why do I need to learn to drive? And I was like, because you need to like man up a bit and learn to drive. She can't be driving you around everywhere. And he was like, (laughs) oh, very feminist. And I was like, I'm sorry, but... That's just how I feel. You need to learn to drive. What if she breaks her ankle and she can't drive? Just go and get your license. And he was like, I don't think this is very feminist, Deborah. And I was like, it isn't. Uh, I'm a feminist, but learn to drive. And I think it's because I knew him when he was a kid. Right. So I feel like, you know, like I'm allowed to say that. I wouldn't say that to another man. But for him, I was like, come on, you're just being lazy. Learn to drive. I yeah. might have told him to man up. When you knew him when he was a kid, did he play in many cars or anything like that? Like, or play no, Grand Theft Auto? No, he's always been a sort of ideas-driven, big reader. Never ideas shown any driven, interest in driving. Not a motor car-driven type of person. He has then. had loads of lessons and he just, I think he just hasn't gone and done it. He hasn't mm. like closed the deal. You know, he hasn't gone and got his license. And I'm like, I think you need a license now. And he was like, <laughs> very feminist. Why can't she drive and I be the passenger? And I was like, yeah, great point. Get your license. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but I wear a two-piece bikini while swimming. And not because I'm particularly body positive, but just because since the lockdown, my one piece doesn't fit me anymore and my boobs keep tumbling out oh. uh, when I swim. I know, I look like one of those paintings, you know, like from the 1800s where a woman is walking around her nip slips out. And you're just like, oh, sorry there. And you pop it back in. But yeah, I wear a two-piece bikini because you keep them all in one place. I mean, might be a bit of a thrill if they oh, are. Maybe. Yeah, it's like going to a casino if you don't know whether your nips are going to stay in your swimming costume. Yes, or going to the supermarket. You yeah. just like liven it up a bit in the just... refrigerated department. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's um... where they're at their best, Deborah, in the freezer <laughs> aisle. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I'm a feminist, but yeah, some very highbrow artists I met got me into Sex Life on Netflix. Netflix shows now are really called Say What You See. And I think it's because it's such a jukebox. They can't have a clever name. Right. So it's called Sex Life because it's about a woman who has an exciting sex life. She was in a sort of toxic relationship with a very sexy Australian man. And then she's got married and moved to the suburbs and with the perfect husband but they don't have a very exciting sex life. And she's writing in her journal. She's got two kids and she's feeling a bit housewifey and a bit disconnected from her old exciting rock and roll self. But she starts writing in her journal on her laptop 
And her husband starts reading her journal, so starts to try and replicate this old sex life that she used to have in the rock and roll era to try and spice up the marriage because he's such a good guy. Instead of being angry, he's sort of like, oh, I'm going to give her everything. But it's always a bit awkward and it doesn't quite work. But she has the most extraordinary nipples I've ever seen. They're like long. And I'm so transfixed by the length of her nipples. Now, I was told about it and I was like, I'm not going to remark on this poor woman's nipples. They are remarkable nipples. To the extent where I thought, are they real? Like what? My uh, genuinely, my grandma has very good nipples. Like, how uh, do you know that? Because I would have no clue about the nipples of my grandmother. Ah, uh, you just, you know, you might be getting dressed or something like that. But like, I just looked at them and I was like, I didn't inherit those, you know. <laughs> and I wish, I wish I did. Like, yeah, tricky little bastard jeans. Aren't they? Aren't they? You do you do look at your relatives' nipples and you're like, oh, I got the short I got the short stack on that one. You know? I don't really know how long my nipples are. I'm just gonna have a quick look. I think they're just I don't know. I've never been that worried about my breasts. Like I no. can be, I can be critical about other parts of my body, but I've always thought my breasts are a perfectly good example of the genre. No, like and I quite like my nipples. The engineering that goes into them is amazing. Like the little lumps and bumps, the are- is it areolas? Is that yep. what called around it? And you you look at it and you kind of look at them stiffen and you look at it like the Tower of London. When mm. you see a bridge go apart, you're like, wow, how does it do that? How and, does it, what the engineering, yeah. the feats of engineering. I know, yeah. if, if more stuff was built like nipples, I think we'd have, we'd have a, you know, less phalluses, more nipples. That's what I say to architects. <laughs> big lover of St Paul's Cathedral I am that's not so much nippy... of the Gherkin building that's it... Alison Spittle's view of the London skyline do we have any fad shaped um, uh, buildings very few uh, probably the O2 is the closest yeah probably. yeah you're right would that be I don't... Uh, yeah well, I'm going to have a good think about that do you have an I'm a feminist part for us let's do it I'm a feminist but when my dad asked me to come up and help him with my granddad's garden on Saturday, I went up on the understanding that I would be making tea and stuff like that, uh, not actually doing physical labour. And when I was wheeling my wheelbarrow full of pampas grass, I thought, Emily Davison didn't throw herself under a horse for this. Like, this is not the equality that I want. This is not the equality that I want. I it's thought I'd not. be given emotional support. I'm just not used to this type of equality that my dad yeah. has given me now, which is hard physical labor. Hard physical labor. I understand that. I understand that. I would the like to pick and choose my equality more as well. Yeah, I know. And my sh- I'll make the, the balance of equality to chivalry. I think it should be one part equality, one part chivalry. I genuinely just wanted to make tea and go, oh, how did you do that? That's amazing. Good on you. You know, that's what I wanted. I don't no. even want to make the tea. I'm, <laughs> I'm a feminist, but the other night the quarterfinals were on between England and the Ukraine, mm-hmm. and it was very exciting. We'd already scored two goals, and a friend of mine who is a male art curator walked in and said, so who's playing? Is it the United Kingdom? And I said, be gayer. <laughs> be be gayer. Go on, be gayer. I said, what do they shout on the terraces? Do they shout UK? And he went, oh, no, they shout England. It's England playing, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but then he retorted, because, I mean, it's female privilege that I would say be gayer. A straight man should, would and should never say that now. If a yeah. straight man said that, I'd be angry. But I felt like he's like one of my closest friends. I was like, I felt I could say be gayer. To which he replied, football's coming homo. Hey! hey! Let's get that as a chant. 
let's not. Because okay. I feel like you and I would be chanting that in the right way, but not everyone would. But there's so many great LGBT organizations now for football clubs. Like there's a West Bromwich Albion LGBT um mm-hmm. And then you can go to, like, they organise watching football matches in gay bars so people can feel safe while mm-hmm. watching football and be in an environment that they like. And I think that's so lovely. Do you know how West Bromwich shows its uh, allyship to LGBT people? They no. have this um, big uh, mascot called Boiler Man, which is just a man dressed up as a boiler because we're sponsored by a boiler company. And it's a rainbow boiler. Oh! I've never... I've never seen such a late capitalism version of allyship in the world to have like a a rainbow shaped boiler just to to go we support you absolutely lovely great have you got any final line of feminist butts oh yeah I'm a feminist but I always do my granddad's nose hair and do his nails and stuff like that but I've never asked my granny if she wants it done and I think that's because I don't want to acknowledge that she has uh, nose hair to her you know what I mean? Yes. I kind of think either she'll sort it out herself. Yes. Like I'm I'm kind of like treating men with very kind of little amount of um them being able to look after themselves. And I just presume that my grandma sorts out her own nose hair or I don't want to acknowledge that she has it. And uh, I think it'd be nice. I should one day as a feminist act go, would you like help uh, with your nose hair? Makes sense to me. It makes sense to me. I don't think this is an, an inaccurate assessment that your oh, yeah. grandfather is probably less good at grooming on his own terms. Oh, he's, t- oh, he's, t- yeah, it's right. Like I go up, we cut the pamphlet grass, we do his eyebrows. Uh, you know, everything gets a once over. I am absolutely <laughs> thrilled to hear it. From a variety of bedrooms and kitchens via Zoom, the Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co host Alison Spittle, and our very special guest, Ola Labib, talking about roots. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminist hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis-White, with me is Alison Spittle, and we're talking about roots. Alison, mm. this topic is going to make more sense when we bring in our guest a little yes. bit. But we're yes. talking about roots and how they affect our feminism today. Yeah. Would you say you've got strong roots? I would say I do have strong roots. I haven't had to use a box dye over the lockdown. Uh, my my hair has been perfectly fine. Um, so I, I do. But you mean, I know what you mean. I was trying to be jokey there because I feel weird I, about it, talking about roots. I generally. Just, it just literally, I was just like, what are you talking about? And then I realized, I mean, oh, your roots. Yeah. Have I know roots that's classic Alison Spittle deflection uh, that I have. But How um, do you feel about your 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 heritage, your lineage, your is does it inform your oh. feminism? Does it inspire it? Does it provoke it? Does it stoke it? Does I it feel, affect it in any way? I feel weird because why I am um was born in England and I moved over I tell like people who've listened to the podcast will know like I moved to Germany, then moved to back to England and then to Ireland and then to England again and then back to Ireland. And when I uh, I think my accent is Irish and I've tried very hard to make it Irish because I didn't fit in when I first moved over to Ireland. Is your mum Irish? My mum's Irish. My grandparents are Irish, but they got married actually in a church around the corner from where I live now. So like in Ireland in the 50s, uh, there was, a, you know, Ireland has a big history of uh, emigrating and then coming back. And um, like I... I tried for a very long time. My dad is very British. 
my dad is so English that I even I feel colonized by him. Like that's how English my dad is. <laughs> like I love him, but like I live in London now, and I've never lived in uh, Britain while a major football tournament has been going on. And my kind of childhood and teen life was kind of like a bit dominated by the sense of identity with football because my dad was so into pronouncing that he supports England in Ireland. And he kind of like willfully never kind of looked up history about it or anything like that. He was just like, we're all all right now. And like he used to put England flags outside of my house and they would get burnt. And I remember (laughs) as a child, I would like, my dad would come up to me and be like, this is what you do when you love your country. You just put out another flag. And he had a whole attic full of England flags. <gasps> and like, uh, he'd put it wow. outside my bedroom window. And as the fumes and smoke used to come into my bedroom at, late at night, I used to pray to God and I used to go to God, God, please let England get knocked out of the World Cup tomorrow, please. And he always answered my prayers. Like, I did keep believing in God for a oh, long time. Wow. wow. Because of like, you know, I looked at God like some sort of like bookie. That could sort out match fixing. <laughs> Just to be clear, you wanted England knocked out of the World Cup so he'd stop putting flags out so they'd stop being burnt and your family would stop feeling in danger because yes. he kept advertising his love of England in the middle of Ireland, which oh, has, in fact... Deborah, like, I remember when I was... I think it was my 11th birthday party. I was born in June, which um, is around the time of Father's Day and, like, football tournaments. So what I used to buy for my dad was, like, you know, England's best football albums. You know, and I had to really search for that in Ireland. And I... I I went to 10 HMVs and they all said... Get out of the English girl. Yeah. Get the fuck out of here. Exactly. Um, so what I think England fans all, what we've yeah. learnt here yeah. is the reason England has lost at football for many years is Alison Spittle's direct line to God. <laughs> yes, but now she I'm in is responsible. I... <laughs> fully responsible. Because she she prayed to God, God answered her prayers. I mean, wow, it's going to be tricky for you now to walk down the street in London, I have to say. Can you imagine, Deborah? I'm sorry. No, I'm like, when I was 11, one birthday party I had, my dad got a boombox, put on Jerusalem on the boombox and started singing. Like, (gasps) to these, like, Irish kids. And these kids, like, do you know when you have embarrassing dads? Like, but my my dad is embarrassingly English, like, and was just like that (laughs) all the time. But... Yeah, I've been having a weird relationship with football and with England. I'm kind of like easing into it. And I feel like a lot of people during this tournament are kind of reassessing their relationship with football and with England and stuff like that. And I feel, yeah. I don't feel English. I don't think anyone would ever tell me I'm English. No, because I've never accent. seen you as, as uh, yeah, you're, no. you, you feel very Irish in, in many ways. Um, yeah. We are recording this the day of the semi-final when England is about oh, yeah. to play Denmark. Yeah, um, I'm kind of torn. Are a you? A little bit because the story of Denmark is so lovely. Like, not lovely. I mean, it's horrific. That's, you know, but I, I feel like if this was a film, we would be rooting for Denmark. You would. If this is like, you know, film based on this match, you would be. Listeners, the the, the views of Alison Spittle are not I'm necessarily so, no, those I of the guilty feminist. Please don't. I'm torn. I'm a guilty please. England fan. That's what I am, Deborah. <laughs> I mean, there's loads of us as well. No, I, I absolutely know. What you, I absolutely know what you mean. But uh, I feel like this. It's England. 
never does one in the football and it's like it is actually doing well so I'm like there's a lot of England fans who really this means a lot to so I just it's a diff for me supporting England in the football seems different from the kind of nationalism because it's sort of like I don't know it's always sort of brings the community together when England is on a good roll so there's part of me that goes oh it's quite I'll tell you what go on I was in Margate on the weekend (gasps) I love Margate I recommended a fish and chip shop to you. I keep doing that with everyone. Pete's Fish Factory. It was truly wonderful. And we got some chips from there and they were the greatest chips in the world. Yes. So, <laughs> but I was surrounded by lots of very arty women, by which I mean artists, like, you know, the sorts of artists that end up in the Tate, you know, like proper, proper, Ooh. proper serious artists. It was really interesting, actually. It was great to be out of my own bubble in someone else's bubble, in a way, because you see, oh, all of those same things are really important, but mm. in a world that I don't really know very much about. I mean, I I love art, but I don't, I mean, I'm, you know. I'm the exact same as you, Deborah. It's like being the shyest one at an orgy. And you're like, oh, we're all having fun, but uh, <laughs> I don't know much about this, you know? I, I presume that's what it would be like. I don't know. I wouldn't know. It was exactly that. It was exactly. <laughs> and funny enough, there was an orgy as well. So that was a double. Nice. An orgy fully of artists. And so I was like, oh, I'm out of my bubble twice. Um, <laughs> but what was interesting was everyone watched the football, even though other than the football, really all they talked about was art and other artists and sometimes politics, but politics through an art lens. And then when the football came on, it was Right. And then at the end, everyone was just running around singing Football's Coming Home. And I was like, this is extraordinary. And I DM'd David Baddiel, who um, regular listeners will know, I know, because he's actually been on the podcast to talk about a show that he did about his mum. And I said, I can't imagine writing anything so iconic that it permeates every single corner of society in England that I said I was just with these very highbrow art people. And then when the football came on, everyone was running, running around singing it at the top of their lungs. And I said, it must be something, you know, to have written something that's that iconic, that it doesn't matter where you go in society. Everyone knows that song and everyone sings that song. To know that that song's going to be played at your funeral, presumably your state's funeral, because you wrote that song on a pipe organ in St. Paul's Cathedral, that song will be played. <laughs> and he went, yeah, I know it's going to be the first line of my obituary and it doesn't matter what else I do. <laughs> It's like, yeah. It was sort of like almost like, oh, uh, there's nothing else I can do. <laughs> now, he'd have to cure cancer now to knock that out of the first line of his obituary. I love if that's what spurred on finally the proper cure for cancer is David Baddiel running away from his three lions past. Like, uh, <laughs> you know? if David Baddiel was like, right, I'm going to get in a lab with Frank yeah. Skinner. And the one from the lightning seeds. Who's the, the awkward the man in the, in the music video? There's an awkward man with them because they're obviously both so comfortable doing, you know, walking down the street and doing their kind of comedy watching football act. And there's a very mm. awkward man with them who I think is the one from the lightning seeds. Right. Who looks like he's in a school play. And they just look like a couple of comedians <laughs> in a music video doing a bit of performative acting but he looks really uncomfortable he's like he's forgotten how to walk when he walks down the street you know that feeling that you get sometimes if you suddenly have to walk across the stage to pick up an award or something and you think oh how do I walk oh I've forgotten walking I would be terrible in a music video though Deborah like can you think of like what would you do if you were in a music video I'm going to be in one I'd do a twirl what would you do I'm going to be in one. I'm going to be in Grace Petrie's music video. <gasps> what? So yeah. what? Okay. See, so first of all, you can't be holding a mug and go, this is a mug. What, <laughs> what are you planning? <laughs> I am planning to ha- take a mug because I, okay. I, 
I want it to evoke three lines. I think I'm going to say that. I'm going to be like, can I awkwardly hold a mug and then forget how to walk down the street? And be like, walking? Oh, I'm being watched walking. What, what do I do when I walk? Uh, that's self-conscious. Um, I don't know what I have to do, but I've spent the whole of lockdown learning to dance. So I've already told Grace, I expect to do some writhing. Nice. Writhing, yes. I think on a car. I think that I'd love to do a music video where you would dance with a car. You want to be in Grease Lightning? I do, yes. Grease Lightning specifically. Or Or like like on a boat. Can I jump off a table in leg warmers? I'd be open to that. I could do that, but I might break my ankles, which I don't think would be good in a, you know, like (laughs) in a music video where it's just you've been framed. People falling over. Which yeah, you might good. end up in the bloopers reel. Yeah, that's not what anybody wants. A cool thing would be to get like, um, we were talking about football and like kind of the community that brings it together. And I've been to a few football matches because uh, my dad supports West Bromwich Albion and I support, like that is genuinely how we communicate is by watching football together or like show any affection or love for each other. It's kind of like that. Um, oh, that's how English men do it. Like I know. The, for the football, I honestly don't think that many men care about football as much as it's, it's an outlet because it's the only time that they can cry. It's the Definitely. only time they can hug. Yes. It's the only time they can sing. And so, it's the only time they can shout abuse at people without maybe getting <laughs> arrested. That's true and as well. They can, they like can express their outlet. anger. They can exfoliate <laughs> their anger. They can exfoliate their joy. They can exfoliate their love. They can exfoliate yes. their tears. And they are allowed to sing. Because you know, if you take a lot of those guys to karaoke no, and go, oh, would you like to get, they'd be like, no, 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 I don't sing. And then they're together and they're like, three lines on a shirt. Um, yes, and yes. Or uh, the referee's a wanker. They love that one. You're going home <laughs> in a fucking ambulance. <laughs> I would love that. Like, you know, to go home in an ambulance, lie down, traffic, none of it. It's quite a luxury. I mean, nothing I mean, has happened to me. Like, someone has offered me a lift in an ambulance. Do you think we should do, like, feminist chants? I think we oh, should write yes. During the show, I'm going to try and come up with some With sort some of, feminist like, football chants. So, yeah. like, what, the patriarchy's a cunt or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Intersectional or nothing. Intersectional <laughs> or nothing. <laughs> it's the new frontier, I feel, in feminism, mm. is feminist football chants. Yeah, chants. So that actually when we go to a march... We all just do sort of like feminism, feminism. Yeah, exactly. Or we don't do it for you. We don't do it for you. We put makeup on, but we don't do it for you. (laughs) We just sing that at a man. Don't tell me to smile. 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 (laughs) <laughs> I love that. I love that. So yeah. uh, Alison Spittle's full book of feminist football chants will be coming out uh, soon <laughs> uh, at Christmas. You'll be able to buy that little book of feminist football chants. I would actually sell Alison. We should write that together. Genuinely. Je- look, if you co-sign on this, we, we can get some feminist. Can, can you it. imagine me going to a football match? Just going. <laughs> I, the patriarchy's I a wanker. <laughs> <laughs> the patriarchy's a wanker. um equality's coming home it's coming home it's coming equality (laughs) well she's coming home i mean people would love it 
People would really respond well, especially football fans. We got too many syllables, I feel, in feminist language. It's very hard to like, or maybe it's not coming home. It's not coming home. It's not coming. A woman's place isn't necessarily in the home. Because in, oh, that's it. No, let's Let's keep workshopping it. Let's keep workshopping it. They can't all be gold. It's a brainstorm. I know. Yes, and. That's the problem with feminist football chats as well. We'd have to have so many caveats as well of like, you know, you have the choice. <laughs> it would be like, I find it hard I'm not making the judgment. I find it really hard to stand up because stand up's all about snappy. Yeah. And it's like a clear punchline. And so the binary is actually very useful in stand up comedy I because know. it's this, all that. And I find sometimes the edge comes off my stand up because I have to say, of course, understanding that people of minority genders are included in this joke or, you know, and it's like, Let's you get that in the football chat. And I, I always know. have to go asterisk, yada, 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 yada. Ba-da, 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 ba-da. Of course, hashtag not all men. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's- <laughs> it's, huge, it's, it's unbelievably difficult. Um, I don't have a lot of sporting roots in Australia. I did not start supporting any sport until I came to England. And I tend to support England, not Australia, because... You know, you support the underdog, don't you? They need the help. Um, but also I got into watching Wimbledon when I was here. And then, of course, it was the Tim Henman era. Mm. Um, come on, Tim. Uh, and people still shout that at Andy Murray. He finds it hilarious. He really doesn't. <laughs> Andy Murray's not one of life's laughers, is he? No, God. He's a feminist, him. though. He loves He loves a bit of a feminist retort. There's a yes. video that goes round of him all the time where some uh, interviewer is saying to him, and so-and-so is the first American to do such and such. And he just looks at him really dourly and goes, the first man, I know. first male player. And the guy I goes, know. oh, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> and he goes, yeah. But he doesn't laugh. He's not like, yeah, you forgot. Yeah. He's like, the first tennis player, no, the first man. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I don't have a lot of those kind of roots because I, mm. I find the sound of sport quite depressing. When my dad would watch football on a Saturday afternoon, no one else watched it with him. Poor my dad. Oh. Um, just that noise of the crowd and stuff. I always find sport depressing, the sound of it. If I'm watching, like, if I like to watch Wimbledon and I like to watch, you know, if England's playing, I think and everyone's, you like Wimbledon it's a community because feeling. of the sound of it. You the know, sound it's a lot of, of it. like, oh, ha, 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 ha. It does sound like a porn film. <laughs> it does. A really slow one. Like a really, like, yes. they're, they're if a porn film had somebody going, 15 love uh, <laughs> over the top. Someone's scoring, yeah. scoring the scoring, so to speak. Uh, but in terms of, yeah, um, yeah, I still call Australia home. I feel quite conflicted about that as well because I didn't really fit in in Australia. Yeah. But also I was a Jehovah's Witness. I've never lived there as not a Jehovah's Witness. So I don't really know since I was a kid. So I don't really know what I would, what it would be like. I love it. When I go back now, I sometimes go, why do I not live here? Like the Guilty Feminist is amazing over there. Like I just love doing the Guilty Feminist in Australia and New Zealand. It's an amazing reception. So I think if I had lived in Australia and I'd known the people that I know now and I'd known the communities I know now, I would feel very differently about it. And if I'd lived in Melbourne, I don't think I would have needed to come to London. Like come, but not live to change. But I went from the Gold Coast to London and that was such a big difference. So when I go back, I do, especially when I'm in Sydney, I go, this is remarkable. This is amazing. The weather and the people and the... And you do and have I- a sense of home. Like well, before the lockdown, you were doing kind of comedy shows to raise money for 
the I, I was going to say the Australian wildfires as if like fires need money and you were encouraging that but I mean like you know the, yeah, yeah the bushfire fund yeah yeah, yeah the bushfire fund horrible yeah it was really horrible so yeah I did some bushfire fund raises here and in Australia and but then with I, anything that happens in Ireland I feel a connection and I want to kind of help and yeah but I don't necessarily feel 100% Irish because when I was younger I remember being on the phone to a lad and he heard an English twang or whatever in something I said and he hung up on me oh my god or I'd have people say you claim to be Irish but you weren't born here so you mm. can't be Irish and then they'd be but there are other people say don't claim to be English They're, it's so weird it's I so had weird. a strange accent when I was a child I don't know why I I joke I read a lot of Enid Blyton as a child and I picked yeah. up the accent from the books um but I remember kids running around me at girls brigade going you sound like a palm you sound like a palm oh They'd go, I'm saying, I would say, I'm not, I'm not English, I'm Australian. They'd be like, oh, I'm not English, I'm Australian. They would mock me for my accent because I had yeah. a sort of just, I suppose, a mild metropolitan Australian accent and some kids thought it was hilarious. But I, that, I always used to get teased because I sound like a pom. And I don't know where that came from. But also, if you're Irish, the colonizers are English. If you are a white Australian, you are the colonizer. Mm. So I think a lot of white Australians have a strange relationship with the country because they feel like, well, that feel like they're on stolen land. So, mm. you know, at the beginning of shows, there is a, a respectful country acknowledgement of the Indigenous elders. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a funny thing with that kind of heritage where you kind of go, ooh, it's hard to say, oh, I feel so proud to be Australian because you're part of a country that was founded on genocide of Indigenous people and capturing and uh you know, torturing genocide. This is not very funny, is it? <laughs> no. I'm so sorry. Don't worry, don't. I wasn't waiting to be for you. I was like, when's the punch? Like, I wasn't going like. No, this but, is meant to be. This is meant to be yeah. funny. But in terms of my feminism, my heritage, I was yeah. very thrilled to discover that when I found my biological family, that my great grandmother and my great aunt were a vaudeville double act. Because I always wondered why I wanted to perform and be in comedy. Wow. In London. And in this is for the First World War. And then when they went solo, my great-grandmother Hetty became a dancer and my great-aunt Lucy became a comedian, a solo comedian. So I do have comedy heritage, comedy female heritage in my, uh. in my blood, which I really love. And I think that does make me feel delighted in terms of my feminist past because I didn't know anything about my biological family. So that's a sort of... Roots that I didn't have. And I know Australians who are listening to this are laughing heartily because in Australia, rooting is shagging. <laughs> so if you say, did you have a good root? It's, um, it's, it's quite rude. Oh, right. Yeah. In Ireland, we kind of use root to say like you're looking for something, which I suppose is quite oh, like rooting the around thing. in your bag. Yeah. Did you get a good root around, you know? And, don't uh... say that in Australia, <laughs> Alison. If you go out to the Melbourne Comedy Festival, don't ask someone if they had a good root around. No, <laughs> I encourage you to have a route around, a very route positive, generally. You know, you might find yourself rooting around. Hello, Guilty Feminist. On the 10th and 11th of September, we have two really big, spectacular all-singing, all-dancing shows at the South Bank Centre. We're at the Queen Elizabeth Hall, 7.30pm. Get your tickets now at southbankcentre.co.uk. 
or you can find tickets to anything at guiltyfeminist.com and click through. We will be coming to Australia and New Zealand in October and November. Some of the best shows we've ever done have been in Australia and New Zealand, so we're very, very excited to come back. We will be on the 21st of October in Wellington, 22nd in Christchurch, 23rd in Auckland, 26th in Sydney, 29th in Perth, 31st in Canberra, uh, 3rd of November in Adelaide, the 5th of November in Melbourne, and the 8th of November in Brisbane. So get tickets now, guiltyfeminist.com. If any of the dates have to move, we'll transfer your ticket over or refund your money. So buy with confidence, but do buy as soon as you possibly can, because tickets to the Australian New Zealand shows always sell out. Hello, this is Tom. I am the producer of the podcast. And when I'm not producing podcasts, I'm also writing plays and audio dramas. And I run workshops in which I help people in business use storytelling to enhance their communications. Maybe you've got a new business pitch or you're delivering training or you just need to get buy-in from the rest of the team or anything like that. Whenever you're speaking to other people and trying to change their mind about something, using storytelling can make all the difference. And I'm running a workshop on this over Zoom this coming Wednesday, the 28th of July. It's at 2pm. It lasts a couple of hours. It's fully interactive and there's a ton of stuff that I'm looking forward to teaching you. And there's a special discount for Guilty Feminist listeners. So if you act quickly, you can go to the-spontaneity-shop.com and book your place there. And if you use the discount code GUILTFEMPOD, you'll get £20 off your price. I do look forward to seeing you there. The workshops have been tremendous fun. That's the-spontaneity-shop.com or just follow that and give the show notes and use GUILTFEMPOD to get £20 off. And now back to the podcast. Our guest today is the only black Muslim female Sudanese comedian currently performing in the UK. She has already gained serious ground on the circuit and has no intention of slowing down. Please welcome Ola Labib. Hello, Ola. How are you? Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. We're just so excited to have you on today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I'm a feminist, but I complimented you on your makeup uh, before we started the show. And then you said, oh, it only took 10 minutes. And then all of a sudden I got jealous. I was like, I want to take that compliment back, actually. She looks incredible <laughs> like that after 10 minutes. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. Um, 10 minutes past 12. <laughs> I wish people could see it. You, you're looking radiant, so you are. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today. And I'm so excited to chat to you about Roots. What would you consider Roots to be yourself? Roots to me is where you identify as coming from, where you think who you are, what you look like, everything about you, where it started kind of thing that's how I see it um, so you're Sudanese are you Sudanese British how do you identify so I'm black British but Sudanese so I was born here raised here but I go to Sudan well before Covid every single year for about two months how does that inform your feminism Ola so I don't think many people know that but we come from a very feminist country and a very well not at the moment not for the past 30 two years oh but, I know um, where you're coming from on that with Ireland so we've been in that position as well <laughs> yeah but the thing is like our culture itself before you know all of this 
crap started to come in was quite a feminist country, quite feminist religion. So the most common question, I got married a year and a half ago. And they were like, oh, so you're a Mrs. Dawood now? And I was like, no, I'm still a Mrs. Labib. And uh, that's because um, in my religion, a woman isn't allowed to take her husband's name because uh, back in the slavery times, the slaves used to take the names of their masters. So my husband doesn't own me. I own myself. Yeah. So that's why we don't take our husband's surname. So there's lots of stuff like that. You know, we were one of the first people, women were were allowed to own their own land from however long ago. You know, the ancient Egyptians um, being, so a, a woman used to be identified as having long hair. And um, I usually refer to the Prince of Egypt on TV because that's the only thing that <laughs> are likely to have watched that they can like know what I'm talking about yeah, you know, everybody's bold except yes. for you know like the pharaohs they wear those um big crowns that look like hair it's because once you're powerful and you've got a name for yourself and you're known as a mighty person then you can adopt this headwear because it represents a woman and a woman is a representation of strength so they want to be more like women because it's a sign of strength. So all of these things are in my culture, but um, people don't really give a shit about that anymore, do they? They just see, uh, I wasn't forced to wear this. So you're talking about not being forced to wear a hijab. Do people presume that you are or what's the kind of... I, I'm asking a silly question. No, it's not a silly uh, question at all. Um, Someone... Uh, I was with one of my uh, colleagues when I lived in Ashton-under-Lyne, that's like in the northwest somewhere, mm. and um, someone actually stopped me, like this random stranger, no idea who was, stopped me, and he was like, can I ask you a question, please, love? And I was like, yeah, sure. He had more of a Mancunian accent, but I can't really do that properly. <laughs> uh, and he was like, why do you wear that? And I was like, oh, I wear it because, you know, it's like for modesty. And um, and the way I always explain it to people is we identify our hair as part of our whole body. So I said to him, I said, would it be weird for you if I walked around with my tits out? And he was just like, well, yeah. And I said, how another woman might feel walking around with her boobs out is how I would feel with my hair out. You cover your chest. So you don't draw like tension or like for modesty reasons. I said, that's exactly how I identify my hair. So at this point, I thought maybe he was listening and he was like, look, I just want to wrap this up. Did your husband force you to wear it? I was like, I'm not married. And then he was like, what about your dad? Did he force you to wear it? Oh my God. I don't live with my dad. And he was like, so you want to wear it? And I was like, yeah. And then he was like, okay, well done. He said, well done. He congratulated me. Oh my God. Okay. Oh my God. Do you want to sit? And I was like, no, there's absolutely no, I don't mind getting asked that question. It's really important. But um, yeah, people always assume that I'm forced to wear it. I am always assumed that it's like a compulsory thing that you have to do. My sister doesn't wear one. I wear one. And I think it really, even though like we go to, she comes to some of my comedy nights and I introduce, you know, her as my sister. I could tell by their faces, they're kind of like, oh, is it is that? Oh, oh. Like, I, I could tell. It's like, why do you wear one and she doesn't? Yeah. It's definitely a thing where people assume that I'm forced. That's really interesting. Because it's just like more accessories. I love the look. You know, like, oh, you. yeah, I go on TikTok and like the algorithms for me is like people showing off different types of hijabs. And I'm like, 
why why are people getting weird it's just like you know you can get some really nice stuff like i love accessories like i yeah. Do you know what i think it is like an in thing there's like a, a lot of people it started off with only a few clothing line that used to and they call it modest clothing right but like it's a big thing now you go on asos they have a modest clothing segment you go on boohoo there's a modest clothing segment you go on um h&m they did the first hijabi line of fashion like everybody's doing it and it, at first it used to be just people who wore that that wear it but nowadays you see a lot more people like rocking that stuff you've got like j devil smith um jada smith will smith's wife she's she wears it a lot and it's like drawing a lot of attention so um yeah it's like it's not just for that reason people actually wear it because they enjoy it or they want to and i think that's like a big misconception that's still happening nowadays is there a pushback now against fast fashion amongst your community because some of the places that you mentioned like boohoo are known to be fast fashion which is you know the workers aren't paid properly and it's destroying the environment and stuff is there a push for sustainable modesty clothing there are a lot of sustainable um, modesty lines a lot of them independent i try to support black owned businesses but let's be honest, these things about people being underpaid, they're the hype thing for a month and nobody buys. But then when you go to an independent boutique and you see a dress for £300 and you go to Boohoo and you see it for 40 quid, you're like, hmm. And like, <laughs> people will tend to go for the 40 quid one, regardless of where it comes from. I try my hardest <laughs> to do that. Yeah, I think the answer is we should all buy less and look after what we have better and buy one really good thing that you actually love and care about, which I've shifted to because you just end up with all this awful stuff that actually doesn't make you feel good. It's the purchase that makes you feel good. You say that and I'm very much like that. And you can scroll through my Instagram and you can see a lot of similar outfits in a lot of different pictures. And I don't really care about that kind of stuff, but it's when... I did 21 Soho last week and mm. someone there saw me at Up the Creek the week before. And he was like, oh, I saw you in Up the Creek. You were wearing the same top, weren't you? And I was just like, oh, my God, people notice this stuff. So <laughs> as much as it doesn't matter to me, you know, it's like they make you feel like you're a bit of a tramp that you wear like the same stuff over and over and over again. Not that it's an issue for me. I really don't give a shit. Like I have, yeah. I've had the same hairstyle for like 11 years. I think the answer to that now is it's really sustainable. Like what I love now is I see different people like Sharon Horgan will wear the same thing to play a character in a sitcom that she'll wear on the school run, that she'll wear to an award ceremony. She's amazing at just going, yeah, we don't need to be in a new outfit every time you see us. And Ashling B as well is a big, big advocate for this because her sister's a costume designer and they are really, really, really into sustainable fashion. I do understand there are kind of ethical issues with it. And there are also other issues around income, you know, varying people have varying incomes and it's all very well for people who have more money to be telling people with less money. People, fat yeah. people, like fat people don't even really have a high street store anymore. Like I couldn't buy swimming. Uh, I, I left my swimming costume by the pool and I went back to get it and it wasn't there. And then I had to like wait a few days for the internet to get me a swimming costume because I'm too fat to shop in uh, normal high street shops, which is mad because I don't feel I'm that fat. Not that like it matters or anything like that, but just it yeah. just feels ridiculous in, in that I, way. 
I know what you mean. I do know what you mean. It's like you're not catered for on the high street. And Isn't so it mad that like there's caveats? Like what, this is the whole point of the podcast and everything. But like we'll, we'd never be able to do a chant about sustainable, you know, fashion, sustainable fashion. <laughs> no, indeed. Anyway, Ola, you told me it was Nubian Heritage Month. Can you tell me more about that? Nubia is uh, there. There are people who are. Um, they're found in um, North Sudan, South Egypt, the north of Kenya. It's like a very old civilization, and people assume that Nubia doesn't exist anymore, or Nubian people don't exist anymore. So you probably know when I say Nubian, it's ancient Egypt, not Egypt mm-hmm. that it is today, but the ancient Egypt. So Nubian Heritage Month, we kind of inform people that um, Nubia still exists, Nubian people still exist, the Nubian language still exists. It's to educate people about Nubia. So, for example, people didn't know that there's pyramids in Sudan. I did not know. Yeah, so because people don't really talk about it. The only pyramids people talk about are the ones in Egypt, in actual fact. The Nubian people or the Kush people, the same people that built the pyramids in Egypt were the people that built the pyramids in Sudan. But unfortunately, um, it's not talked about because there was a genocide where even like the government, the one that's just passed, um, they killed a lot of um, Nubian people. They flooded their land, part of their land. They stopped them being allowed to speak the language one of the most ancient civilizations in Africa, and they've been silenced. So once a year, we do a Nubian Heritage Month where we talk about these things that people, you know, never know about it, and um, we keep preaching. (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit about Nubian heritage and particularly Nubian women? So Nubian women, they were queens, they were warriors. Um, so, you know, nowadays, like, it's like, oh, military, um, men-led, oh, warriors. You know, you watch Lord of the Rings and it's all like Aragorn and Legolas. But in the times of Nubia, the women were the warriors. They were the front line. They were, you might have heard the term Nubian queen, Nubian queen. Yes. They were yes. such powerful women. So through our movement, we kind of like, preach feminism because that's where it comes from so Nubian people how we take our father's name or we take the husband's name Nubians are the opposite they take their mother's name when they pass on the lineage they pass on the lineage of the mother rather than the father so they're very very much female-led so would it be described as like a matriarchal society very much so right that's cool but it's amazing like it's amazing like you learn so much about it and um that's why I think it's really difficult being African and being Muslim. You're so like that you, you get both ends of the spectrum. So people are like, oh, you're Muslim. Oh, I bet you're quite oppressed. So you have to, you know, obey the men in your family. But then I tell them, well, actually, no, I'm African. And this is like my heritage. And we're actually very independent and very strong. And, you know, we hold the family together. So having two contrast I think kind of mind boggles people that you can be from even though that's not right about Islam but this is the perception people have I think it really like mind blows people that you can be from two completely different backgrounds almost yeah that it appears to be two extremes but it isn't but it isn't at all it it all comes together as one 
I'm just reading here about Amanarinus, who is the Nubian queen who conquered the Romans. Um, she ruled the area between the Nile and the Atbara River between 40 and 10 BC. She was the second queen of the Kush kingdom and was popularly known as Queen Mother of Kandaki, the title Kandaka. given to Kandaka. Kandaka. <laughs> Kandaka, the title given to a ruling queen. Uh, so there's a, like a really extraordinary heritage, and there's pictures of her here that just look absolutely amazing, and all sorts of Nubian queen illustrations of really remarkable looking outfits that are just wow. The fashion is absolutely incredible, and the headdresses are yeah. So a lot of the beauty standards and traditions they did then they do today. So for example, henna on the tips of the fingers. Yeah. Um, if you look at um, some of, because these Kandakas and these Nubian warriors, they are the women that are painted on pyramid walls. These are hieroglyphics and, you know, all these ancient documentations are based on them. So one of the beauty standards that they used to do, they used to put henna on the tips of their fingers and... Oh God, I've got really skanky feet today. <laughs> on the sole of their feet. Oh, yeah, wow. wow. Yeah, so that's something that have, they've been doing since those days. So I've been posting recently and showing pictures of hieroglyphics, pictures of mummified Kandakas and Nubians where their fingernails were still stained with henna. And this is something that even though it was done as far as that time, we're still practicing that today. Women still do that today from our jewellery to tattooing of our bottom lips to make them look darker, from ethnic markings. Tribal markings have gone down quite considerably because they are quite brutal. My A little bit older than my mum and my grandma's generation is starting to die out now, but depending on your tribe, you would get uh, tribal markings. So these were all things that were done as far as like, you know, the ancient times, but they're starting to die down a little bit. Is that because some of the way, it was like tattooing that was painful? It, they didn't tattoo, they cut into your Oof. skin. I think I've got a... Kind of like scarring it and marking your skin. Yeah. Kind of, okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. It's kind of tattoos nowadays. Some people get these tattoos where it's kind of like, there's no ink, but it's raising of the skin. Like yes. that the scar tissue is kind of... um. Come together, and what would you think is the big identifier for modern Nubian women now? Because in like in Ireland, we had this thing called Breton laws, which is like ancient Celtic kind of way of life, and it was more of a matriarchy back then as well. Like divorce laws were way more liberal, and then Ireland, due to like a lot of stuff, kind of changed. Uh, and I'd love to know, like, what is it like now, and how do you kind of like keep a hold of your Nubian heritage as well that's a very long question no it's not at all and <laughs> in regards to Irish Celtic I find that so interesting of mm. one of my best friends Colin he's um Irish and he's studying um he's really studying into the history of Ireland and it's actually so bizarre because there are some Celtic words that are very similar to um indigenous languages found in North Africa. So I yeah. don't know what the connect is, but it is so interesting, like the um, Celtic language and some other African languages. And he's actually coming next Sunday because it's Nubian Heritage. We want to see if there's a even the minutest link that could... Um... And it has to be the sea. Like, because when you say Kenya, which part of Kenya 
is the Nubian, wouldn't you say Sudan, Egypt and parts of Kenya? Yeah, like... so um, Sudan, North Egypt, it's the parts of Ethiopia, parts of Somalia, um, right. North Kenya. So it's what it's called today is only what was when they were colonized, they were divided. It was all these, mm. now it's all these different areas. But before it was the Kingdom of Kush. So it covered a much larger area. So once upon a time, we were all one people. We were all one um, dynasty, if you like. But mm. after colonization, we were all divided. For example, the Nubian language, which not many people speak today, is very similar or it's a similar group to the Tigray language of um, Ethiopia, mm. different countries. But once upon a time, you know, we, we have similar cultures, we have similar traditions, we wear similar things, we have similar beauty standards, we have everything. There's so much sim- similar food. So once upon a time, it was all one kind of group, but it just like kind of divided. Um, in regards yeah. to how do you identify someone that's Nubian, that's really hard I can my husband's Nubian my dad his ancestors came from Nubian heritage but my mum I don't know maybe they did maybe they didn't I have no idea but you wouldn't say oh he looks like one thing and the other person looks like another we all look similar all via accents and language and unfortunately like in the UK there's not a lot of kind of education about that part of Africa so you know, we're kind of doing our own thing by trying to educate ourselves, trying to educate others, because it's not something that's really spoken about, like on social media, on TV, like you don't really hear about it. When I tell people there's pyramids in Egypt, they're like, what? No way. Never heard that before. Do you mean pyramids in Sudan? Yeah. 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 Well, I've never heard of it, but I've, I've looked it up while it. we've been talking. And it's amazing. I've been to Egypt and I've been to pyramids and I've been inside pyramids. I didn't know that about Sudan. And yeah, here they are. Large as life on the internet. Uh, Also, the unbelievable fashion of Nubian women, both historical and current, beautiful headpieces, beautiful costumes, beautiful style. And just it's just gorgeous. I feel like that's just something we haven't been educated about, but I really recommend if you're listening at home, give it a Google. Yeah, um, I had a Nubian wedding, and uh, I had so we have a traditional headpiece that um, women wear only on their wedding day, and um, I really wanted a traditional wedding, and it was just before COVID, and I was like, I want to go back to the village, and I want to have a traditional wedding, I want to have a Nubian wedding, and thankfully, I got married at the end of December, so it's before things Ooh, really uh... started in 2019. You know, I think it's so amazing that something that happened thousands of years ago is happening now. We're still carrying on the same heritage, the same culture the headpieces to the big gold um, gamarbobe earrings, to the henna, to the chants, to the rituals, like everything has stayed consistent. And we're really, really, um, I'm part of a group that's launching called Kandaka Official, and we are really pushing to hold the heritage. We are really pushing for mm-hmm. the culture not to die, for the language not to die, so that next generations know where we're coming from. Things are slowly starting to get forgotten, but we're trying to hold it together and um, preserve it. I'm really happy you're doing that. It just looks glorious. And I just think the modern world, globalization has a way of ironing everything out. So mm-hmm. it's a sort of disnification of the mm-hmm. world. 
And I, I think it's really wonderful. And I hope that there's more art and stories that come from your culture so that, you know, it is something that is appreciated worldwide, but also something that's held and, and grown locally. Yeah, I hope so too. Part of the group, the uh, the Nubian movement, is that they've actually um, did a Kickstarter and managed to raise £9,000. And they're making children books, Nubian children's book, teaching, and it's not just for kids, it's for adults as well, teaching them the letters, teaching them the numbers, teaching them old stories, old wife's tales. So they've really like become more active, um, again, to preserve the culture. So I'm really hoping that like it spreads, more people will be like aware of what's happening and, you know, really active and like trying to help us in this movement. So that's what we're hoping for. And can people donate to that Kickstarter? Is there still kind of like, um, is there anything that any kind of guilty feminist can do to help with the movement? Uh, So once we launch Kandaka Official, if whoever is listening, if they can promote it, um, and really see um, what we were and how we still want to be. Um, unfortunately, like I said, um, our government has really gone above and beyond to try and eradicate the Nubian language, the Nubian cultures. They're really, really trying to wipe it out. But um, diaspora, as well as um, Nubians in Sudan, are really working hard to um, preserve it. So just by promotion, talking about it, spreading the word, that is more than enough um, that that anyone can do, really. So how did you get into comedy? What made you want to get into comedy? I've I've always wanted to do comedy, um, but I came from, uh, this is going to literally like contradict everything that I've said. What is the guilty feminist without contradictions? What exactly. is it? You know? we, we live on them. Oh, man. I got really, uh, my parents are really quite strict. And, you know, with our kind of upbringing, you're either a doctor, you're a pharmacist, you're an engineer. You don't really have any other choice, really. So um, it's something I've always wanted to do. I ended up doing pharmacy and specializing and go, and, and there's nothing wrong with my job. It's very rewarding. Yeah. And. <laughs> But comedy is something I've always wanted to do. And then when I hit 30, I just, I really got to a low point. I was just like, what am I doing? This isn't my passion. I can't see myself doing this for the rest of my life. So I moved to Manchester because the comedy circuit there is, I heard through the grapevine, amazing. And it is amazing. Um, And yeah, I did my first open mic, went quite well, even though there was three members in the audience. (laughs) They asked me to come back again to the same place. And then somebody else was there who had his own comedy night and did his comedy night and literally. literally. How did you feel like after that first gig? Oh my God, Alison, that buzz. Do you know what? I don't think I will ever have that level of adrenaline ever again in my life. Like obviously when you have big gigs, you're like, oh my God, oh my. But that first time, because it, you, you kind of feel like it's the make or break. If I went in there for the first time and I completely bombed, mm. I don't know what would have happened. I could have been like, I, I don't think I'll ever come back. Like I've tried it. It's obviously not for me. But the fact that the guy asked me, his name's, um, oh God, I feel like such a bitch. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> I, I felt like. James Kirk. Is it James Kirk? It's um, the Apple and Ape in Manchester. Nice. Yeah. Nice. 
Um, yeah, if he never asked me to come back, and that's why I'll always be thankful for him, even though I can't remember his first name. <laughs> <laughs> I'm look- terrible with names. I mean, <laughs> I, I get blocks as soon as I try and think of them. I think I've Jason got a bit Cook. of a block. I'm I- sorry, <laughs> Jason. I love you, Jason. I don't know what it is. I've had a really late night and a very early start. Jason, <laughs> if he didn't tell me to come back for the second time, I don't know what would have happened, but that was a sign to say, you know what, you're really good. Please come back and do it again. So, um, um, so Ola's going to do some stand-up for us today. Amazing. Please welcome to the mic, Ola Labib. Woo! Woo! Ow, 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 yeah. ow, ow. It's a lot of responsibility on us, Deborah, to be good audience members, and I'm feeling ready. Let's do <laughs> I'm it. Re- I'm ready. <laughs> uh, so my name's Ola. I haven't been doing comedy for that long. It's been about two years, but I'm really enjoying it because I've learned a lot of new things. Um, I've never been in pubs before, uh, so, you know. Um, and as you can probably all tell by looking at me, I'm not from around here. Uh, I'm actually from Portsmouth. So <laughs> the starting comedy has been really new experience for me because I've never been accustomed to white people looking at me with happy expressions on their faces. Honestly, uh, I think the last time I saw that many people looking at a girl with a hijab on looking so happy is when they refused to let Shimi Mabegan back into the country. (laughs) It only goes up from here. Um, I was the only um, black African girl in my school growing up in Portsmouth, or according to the other students, I was apparently the only Pakistani they'd ever met. They don't know the difference. Um, And it was really annoying because whenever someone met me for the first time, they'd be like, whoa, your English is so good. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Where did you immigrate from? Because your English is shit. (laughs) (laughs) So that's basically my first two, three minutes um, that I was uh, working on strengthening. Thank you. It's so cool to... Yeah, it's so cool to talk to you at this stage of your career as well because it's like so full of hope and like, you know, you're you're in the in love stage with comedy and like, you know, it's beautiful. Like, I love comedy. I love comedy. Yeah. I think I think, you know, people try to get words and messages out by, you know, like preaching or by, you know, spoken word. And mm. I think comedy is such a powerful way of getting a message across because when you laugh at something you're more likely to remember it mm-hmm. and uh, that's why I love watching people like Dave Chappelle Dave Chappelle as much as he is the funniest man in the universe or second funniest man in the universe my dad's number one funniest man in the universe. <laughs> and as much as he's the second funniest man in the universe you learn a lot mm-hmm. from his stand-up he educates you religiously politically socially and I love that. I love listening to comedy and learning something. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make people laugh because we yeah. all love to laugh and it makes you live longer. And <laughs> at the same time, teach people stuff. So um, that's why for me, comedy is like a perfect platform. We're hearing from a pharmacist then that laughter is the best medicine. Is that the... Yeah. <laughs> You're a pharmacist <laughs> and comedian. Like you guys. <laughs> the best you combo. Listen to comedy. <laughs> I think you're right though, because there's uh, they've they've done um, 
you know, various psychological studies about it. And apparently your armor comes down when you laugh. So at a time when you might normally feel defensive about something, a lot of men have said that they've accepted feminism through the guilty feminist because when your defenses are up and you're like, I don't need to learn this, you know, I look, you know, you're complaining about nothing. Uh, but when you laugh, your defenses come down and then actually you can receive that message. Oh, yeah, so, 100%. There was a study that was done. I think nobody nobody about. needs to admit that they are like this because if everyone yeah. laughs, we are all admitting society is like this. And, yes, yeah, sometimes I do stuff like that or I've thought mm-hmm. stuff like that. So even if it's something like Michael McIntyre talking about his mandrel, when yeah. the audience laugh in recognition or him talking about putting up the Christmas tree or whatever and getting tangled in the lights, it's like we all laugh in recognition. Oh, yeah, we understand what you mean. And therefore nobody has to go, I also have problems putting up my Christmas lights. I also have a mandrel. I recognize that behavior because the laughter tells us this is common. And so when you transfer that onto something like bigoted attitudes or unpleasant thoughts that human beings might have or behaviors that might be entitled, if we all laugh, we go, we recognize this in society. We either recognize ourselves as the perpetrators of it or the receivers of it. So no one in the audience has to go, I'm a bad person. We go, society is sort of coded this way. And it helps us go, yeah, I have an ownership of that. I have an understanding of that. And actually, then next time I go to do that, I think, I remember when I laughed at that in a kind of way where I thought that wasn't ideal or that was actually unpleasant. I can now own it, not as I am a bad person, but the society is, has drawn us all to take certain entitlements and other ways in which we may feel personally marginalised. And we can sort of figure that out in the wash a little bit more. Whereas when someone gets attacked on Twitter as you're a bad person, they defend. But as soon as we all laugh, we all go, yeah, sometimes we're all like this. And I think that helps us change. That was so beautifully said. Yeah, so well. That's really great. Like, I feel like um, the wonderful thing about being a comedian as well is like, I'm not afraid to perceive myself as a person that doesn't know everything. Do you know, like I can go, I don't know about that. And I'd like to know more. And I feel like I've learned so much more uh, actually being on The Good Feminist and doing comedy and stuff like that. Then, oh, yeah, definitely. Then a lot. Yeah. Like there, there wasn't like a lot of like mixing and integration and like through comedy. I've met so many different people, I, yes. you know, and like the way they think. And like, I'm not going to lie. After Before comedy, you know, the kind of people I hang out with were very restricted. Like I'd like to be with people that understood me and maybe looked more like me but mm. during comedy honestly I was a bit of an arrogant twat before but my god Ola. like I'd never met anyone from private school before I did comedy now I've loads of mates that are <laughs> well maybe you need to introduce me because I don't really know a lot of people who went to private school either oh there's loads of them <laughs> loads in comedy loads of comedy because they can afford to do it I have so many it's and so I love true. It. Said with, like, you know, of loads and but there's like a this definitely kind of opened up my eyes to that kind of thing. It's been yeah, eye opening. It's been great. Have they pay for your drinks? Yeah, exactly. I, I go, I, I talk about my background. I'm like, I'm from a council estate. And then they're like, Would you like a drink? And I'm like, Yes. I go off on all that guilt all the time. It's amazing. Can you introduce me? I'm <laughs> And I hate paying for coffees in London. They're like £4.25. There should be a tax. There should be a tax on people that went to private school in the creative industries and they buy coffee for people that have gone to uh, live in council. I think we're going to get on just well. Somebody said their boyfriend was going to clown school in Paris and I went, (laughs) and I made a joke about him being rich 
And people thought I was joking, like, obviously someone in their 30s going to clown school is not rich because no clown in their 30s. And I was like, no, I'm not. Because only there's no way, if you're, unless you're from privileged family, your family are not going to support you going to clown college at 32. I'm just telling you, not in Paris. I'm sorry, going to a Paris clown school, you're rich. Your family's rich. You've got a lot to fall back on there if it goes wrong. Because I'm telling you, if your family is working class or has any kind of, you know, like you were talking about, often people who are immigrants will go go be a doctor, go be an engineer, go be an architect. Um, Mm. And I'm like, anybody who's in clown school at 32 is rich. That's just (laughs) my rule for life. Yeah. You it's might like, go to clown school. A working class person might go to clown. We're very young and everyone's poor and everyone's broken. I've just kind of found a way. But if you're 32 and you decide to go to clown school, I'm sorry. Listen, and please write in and tell me. I am not rich and I went to clown school. I found a way. I got a scholarship. If you did, I great. But I suspect you're the exception to the rule. And when you were at clown school, you discovered you were with a lot of posh people. That's all and I'm look, I have no issue. Like I plan to be rich. I'm swimming in a very affluent swimming pool at the moment. I overhear stuff. I swear to God, I'm exercising and I feel like I'm in government meetings. Like I just hear so much big talk. <laughs> and it's like, and I'm like, I can live this way. Yeah, I, you know, absolutely. I'm, absolutely. Yeah, Listen, we all want to be rich. Let's not even lie about that. Yeah, I say we all meet together at clown school in two years time. And that, that's Let's your goal. It. For Yeah, we've got to be rich enough to drop out for a year and go to clown school. Not drop clown out. School. Yeah, get some cars, water, biscuits. I'm trying to think of like affluent stuff that I aspire to. Pims and, and lemonade, <laughs> quail's yes. eggs, clown school. That's all I'm saying. It was absolutely fantastic to meet you, Ella. I hope you can come back on The Guilty Feminist again. I would love to be back again. Can I ask, is there anything you wanted to plug, Ola? Anything you wanted to tell us about? Anywhere that our listeners can follow you? Uh, so you can follow me on Instagram, on at the Ola Libib, and on Twitter. I don't really use Twitter that much. I'm still trying to get my head around it. And yeah, I've got a few things in the... What's the word? Not limelight in the... Pipeline. Pipeline? Let's pipeline. say pipeline. I knew it was one of them. <laughs> pipeline. <laughs> and Alison, Alison you got, got anything going on? I got two podcasts. I got the Alison Spittle Show, which is on headstuff.org. I got uh, Wheel of Misfortune with Fern Brady and Alison Spittle on BBC Sounds. You can go listen to it there. I am not doing a cool video party anymore because stuff has opened up now. So I feel I didn't. So why am I promoting something that doesn't exist anymore? Like I need something new in my life, lads. That's what I need. I'm also doing a new podcast called Our Findus Crispy Pancakes Feminist. And uh, maybe if you're listening to this in the future, it might be out. Wow. What's yeah. our Crispy Findus Pancakes Feminist? Well, you see, I'm going on a journey, Deborah, and I have to find out whether they are or not. <laughs> that's, that's... Okay. All right. We're, we're on board for that. I'm on that uh, journey with you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm excited to hear that podcast. Nay, guest on it, if I'm allowed. Okay. Oh, yes. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host Alison Spittle and our very special guest, Alula LaBib. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon and produced with Tom Selinski for The Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Rachel Croft and Gina Dicio and everyone who made this episode happen as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. Woo! And rate, review uh, and subscribe because it helps people find the podcast. But give us five stars. Absolutely. It deserves five stars. If you're listening...
Uh, no, well, you are listening, obviously. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you're not listening, then you don't, you can't hear anything I'm saying. So you, you good. Uh, so for all the people that are listening, mm. we are recording this the day of the semi-final when England is about oh, yeah. to play Denmark. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hulu. <laughs> 